Kira, I'm Jane. And I'm Sophie. Welcome to A TARDIS of One's Own. A queer feminist journey through time and space and new who. How exciting. Welcome to another week. What's been happening in our timeline that's relevant this week? Yeah, I think I went first last time, so... Jen. I don't know. I'm trying to think what horrible things have happened. That you know, What effects have the patriarchy had on us this week? I think for me personally, there's just been a lot of last-minute requests that I needed actioning at 10 o'clock at night, which, you know, is always a challenge. So even though it is Thursday, it feels like this week has been approximately a thousand years long. So I apologise in advance if I'm all over the place. <laughs> yeah, you have been exceptionally busy, and so even finding time to do this is awesome. Um, yeah, I feel like I've had a nicely low-key week. Nice. C- crossing is such word that I'm not jinxing that, but yeah, I think the same, like, low-level frustration. I, I hate the over-promise, under-deliver thing. It's just frustrating. Like, I don't want to, like, you tell me you do a thing, sweet, but then I don't want to be the person who has to come and be like, oh, hey, have you done that thing that you told me you'd do? Yeah. I, then I'm responsible for this mental load of not only my own shit. The project management, right? That's yeah. the thing. When you turn into the project manager, and this is what used to drive me nuts when I was in a relationship, is be like, yeah, of course I'll help you. You just have to tell me what to do. And like, no, I don't want to project manage you. That's 99% of the emotional labor. So that's where, yeah, you end up yeah. in a, a workplace often, which is frustrating. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, what are we doing cool. this week? So this week we are watching, reviewing, Mm. talking about season one, episode three, which is The Unquiet Dead. In this episode, the Doctor has great expectations for his latest adventure when he and Rose join forces with Charles Dickens to investigate a mysterious plague of zombies. Yes, and I love that pun that they've put in there. Great expectations. Great. Love it. Of course, Bechdel test. Yes. And yes. Yeah. Particularly Rose and Gwyneth. Mm-hmm. talking about school and her sight and stuff. I mean, that conversation does kind of talk about boys a fair bit too. Yeah. But Rose is really trying to find common ground with another young woman mm-hmm. to, to varying success. But but yeah, no, I, mean, I think that that's a cool part of it. There's yeah. not much else. I think also worth noting that, yes, there is talk about, you know, boys and that. But yeah. considering the time period and considering Gwyneth's options for her life, right? Like yeah. that is very, yeah, yeah. very pre- like a very yeah. pressing concern for her. Not 100%. And I think... It's that topic that draws out the differences between them. Mm. The fact that Rose can so openly like talk about being interested in boys and, oh, that, you know, lad had a nice bum, that kind of thing, which mm. is the thing that scandalised Gwyneth in, in 1869. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which, speaking of the scandalising, it kind of brings me to the discussion question for this week. So I wanted to talk about witchcraft and religion and the double standard that particularly seems to exist for women. So in this episode, we see that Gwyneth has this ability like that they think is she's talking to the spirits and she is asked to use it to find the corpses that go walking by her employer. And she doesn't really want to. Like she talks about she's a very godly woman, right? She says some things are ungodly. She's scandalized by Rose's behavior. You know, these things. She's like a very devout, sensible woman, if you wanted. So the idea that she's being pushed to use her gift against her will almost and the, the reframing she does to do that like she talks about my angels right mm-hmm. it becomes a religious thing and yeah. that made me think of Joan of Arc right yeah. so you've got this thing where back in the day if you were hearing voices you were either talking to God or you were talking to the devil and that would, would determine whether you were a saint or a witch yeah so interesting but it could also just be used against you like Joan of Arc's a great example right yeah. for the French she's a saint but for the yeah. English she's a, a witch because well you know 
the angels yeah. are talking to her in French and like that's implying that God is French and we won't have that, you know? <laughs> so it's all about perspective and the church can, or not even the church, but the powers that be can turn against you as soon as you're no longer serving their purpose. Yep. So they'll use you for your power and then they'll go, no, now you're a witch. Yesterday you were a saint, today you're a witch. Yeah, very interesting. I think it's a really cool angle to take, especially because typically when we talk about kind of witchy stuff and witchcrafty things, we don't think about the Victorian period. Mm-mm. The Victorian period is very occulty, like seancey, which this episode has, you know, exactly that. But it's not framed as that, as, you know, like spiritual and the occult, right? Rather than being like, this is just a different form of witchiness. Mm. And so, yeah, I think most people, when, especially when it comes to like historical fiction and that kind of thing, witchy means... 15th, 16th, 17th probably century, you know, the Salem Witch Trials, like Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So this is a really cool angle to take with this episode, I think. And my general thoughts coming into watching it with, especially with your theme in mind, I was like, this episode has a really interesting mix of religion versus supernatural mm-hmm. versus sci-fi mm-hmm. and how through that episode it starts off as being like oh this is a supernaturally thing there's zombies there's spirits she has the sight the psychic power mm-hmm. and then it's like just like you say there's this religious aspect because of her own piety but then you know we quite quickly because it's doctor who it becomes about aliens and it's actually science fiction rather than them being like these are christian Christian's idea of angels. Which you could argue is kind of like the journey of science, right? It started off as witchcraft and Mm. occulty. People didn't know why things were happening. It's just witchy. Mm. And then we transitioned into this kind of like, no, it was God doing it. It's religion. That's explaining the occult things. And then now it's science, right? Mm. So you've gone on this journey through... It's all condensed into this one episode. And it is interesting that you mentioned, like, yeah, I was reading about it. The whole witchcraft thing and the persecution of witches was very much in England, the front half of the 17th century. So the Puritan era of, like, the 1650s with the witch hunts. And then this takes place in 1869. So it's been, like, 150 years. So it's quite a long time. That's the same gap between 1869 and now, right? Mm. Yeah, and so something that jumped out to me from, like, reading that historical context of, of kind of witchcraft persecution in England was the source that I read. It was just on a website, Very Brief History of Witches by Susanna Lipscomb, who's a professor. She was making the point that although there was a heavy religious aspect and belief in witches was kind of definitely a a heresy, religious taboo, the majority of 16th and 17th century witch trials were the result of witchcraft becoming a crime under law. Mm. And so that prosecution is actually by the state, which... I think it's really interesting because who is the state? Yeah, men. The, the men. <laughs> so maybe it's ties completely into a double standard and it's to do with more independence and agency and power mm. are these women who, you know, have some sense of they want to commune with nature a bit. They want to shape their environment. They want to, yeah, like practice with herbs and, you know, things that are part of the natural world. But yeah, maybe also doing some kind of spells and things that are a low level in the witchcraft domain. But it's that perception of them having influence, them trying to change the outcome of things Mm. and being like, no, we don't want that. We like our women submissive. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was reading this book earlier this year. It's called A History of Magic and Witchcraft, Sabbath, Satan and Superstitions in the West. And the front section of it is sort of like unpicking the original history of witchcraft and how witches were male as well. Like witches was just a thing that was applied to everyone. And that talks about how there's this idea that in Greek and Roman culture as well, men were practicing witchcraft too and mm-hmm. people think that there is um love spells as like a, a female thing but then they found this history of the scroll basically that detailed greek 
practices and how men were predominantly the ones um, using love spells and would criticize the use of spells and aphrodisiacs by women. And the quote there is like, there was a fear of loss of autonomy and control by a subordinate person, the wife, which was a form of emasculation. Male anger and male sexuality were closely related to a Greek man's sense of masculinity, and so one can see how the female practitioner of magic became an evil witch, subverting power and gender relations, because mm. stay in your place, woman. Yeah, exactly, subverting the status quo. That's really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was, and it's just a different way of thinking of it, because your mind, when you hear witch, you go to a woman, right? Like, that is the, the image that is conjured. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in, in that same reference that I quoted before, she explores that point, you know, in brief, saying that actually, you know, maybe they think in Europe through the main kind of witchcrafty centuries, it was about 70, 80% female, but that's still, you know, 20 or 30% male. Mm. And despite that, there was still this thinking that nevertheless, because women were believed to be morally and spiritually weaker than men, they were thought to be particularly vulnerable to yes. the diabolical persuasion. So it's like those evil spirits, that, that demonness. And most of those accused at the time were also poor and elderly. Many were widows. Many were menopausal and postmenopausal women who were, you know, all disproportionately represented. So it's this theme of marginalized women. Mm. And that made me think of, this is a feminist and kind of queer lens that we're trying to bring here. And that queerness aspect of being other. Mm. Like, if you were anything outside that kind of normal, whatever the normal is for the time in society, then, oh, well, you're a woman alone, or, or maybe you're a woman living with another woman on the outskirts of town, and people are like, oh, what are they up to? Like, oh, it has to be yeah. something it has, suspicious. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. And it makes you vulnerable, right? Like, those yeah. are the people who get accused of doing mm. weird things, even if they're just minding their own business. If you're just slightly outside of the box, mm. then it, you become a target. Well, and vulnerability, exactly, because mm. you don't have what's traditionally the safety net which is the man is yeah. a husband who will speak for you in court who will control the property who will have all the money who will earn an income you know through i mean a lot of women obviously have jobs throughout history but you know more legitimized income right and so if you're choosing to live outside of that or through choice or not you don't have that cultural safety net which is the legitimacy that comes with being linked to a man yeah, and you see that even in this, right? So she works for Mr. Sneed, mm. and he says to her, you will do it or you'll lose your job. Like, he's basically going to fire her if she doesn't use her yeah, hate that. ESB to go yeah, and find the zombie. Nah. Not, not a fan of Sneed, generally. No. When he was like, yeah, that's it. You know, use the site or you're dismissed. I think what I find really interesting about this idea of religion and witchcraft and the line between them, is for women in particular, is that when I was researching this, I came across an article called Witch of Saints and Heretics, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes. But it kind of goes into this idea that 14th century Italy, there were a lot of women who were very pious and prominent in the church. And a lot of the, the men did not like that. They did not like that these women were getting like loads of attention for being very, you know, they were the picture of Christianity. But, you, you know, it's like you're doing it wrong because now mm. you have the power, right? Yeah. And so they started trying to distinguish also between witches and saints the demonic position and the idea that you were you're just communing with god and they brought in the inquisitions right mm -hmm. and all of this is just all part of this move to suppress positive values that have been ascribed to female spirituality it's like no matter how you do it mm -hmm. you're going to do it wrong yeah, yeah so yeah and the, the it's the double standard right that's exactly it it's and the, like, yeah. yeah that whole melius maleficarum that came out in the 14th century hammer of witches that's mm -hmm. all about you know witchcraft and particularly demonizing female practitioners of witchcraft which you know there's definitely misogyny within the text but it wasn't so much about putting women down as just a bit, it was written because they were the dominican order were 
alarmed by the rise of these female practitioners of Christianity who had all this power. So they had to put them in their place, and they do that by creating kind of like a, a moral panic. Like, I know I'm not a witchcraft scholar, so I'm yeah, yeah. very yeah. broad brush here, but yeah. this is, you know, this is the vibe. Mm. And that made me think of Taylor Swift. Yes. Always bringing it back to Taylor Swift. Well, she's got that great line in, on... Forget what song it is. Maybe don't blame me on the Reputation album, which is of course the one she wrote mm. after the whole Kanye debacle, where she yeah. says, you know, they're burning all the witches, even if you aren't one. And this idea that she had all the power, and people wanted to see her fall, like people wanted to bring her down. And so there's, it's not. I'm not saying there was a witch hunt necessarily, but this is subversion of the behavior, like the behavior that was previously fine, mm. is now no longer acceptable. And I think that's what you see often with witchcraft: is like you're helping me, you're helping me, it's fine. Mm. I'll allow it and now you've got too much power so I will turn that very thing that I was lauding in you before against you yeah because once you're out of I mean easily controllable right you know this is only good if it directly serves me or us Mm. being you know patriarchal society and once you you know you see that through this episode they're saying you know Gwyneth is getting stronger and stronger Mm. and they're like well it turns out that she well to be fair she was helping Sneed all along right like Sneed needed her but then towards the end of the episode, like, she literally saves the world. And it's only through her accessing and unlocking the true power that she has that she's able to do that. Yeah. And it's also, as you mentioned, when you're outside of the box that you open yourself up. If I think of Joan of Arc again, one of the things she was tried with was dressing like a man. Like, that mm. was one of the things that was why she was put on trial. So because she was too masculine, she had to go, basically. Yeah, very interesting. Um, So on the subject of clothes and dressing... Mm. That something jumped out to me thinking about double standard yes me too also like oh there's a a whole dress up box in the TARDIS yeah cool so Rose disappears and comes back cleavagey corseted it let's bring it back to this weird flirtiness that I totally forgot that's in this season but super flirty when she gets back and the doctor's like you're beautiful considering you're human and then she's like what about you and he's like oh no no I don't get changed it's like yeah cool okay what I noticed that as well. I'm like, the doctor doesn't have to change. And he says to her, go out there dressed like that. You'll start a riot, Barbarella. Which is not great. And she was dressed perfectly fine. She was like, you know. She's in like a hoodie and. And he's going out there in his jeans and his leather jacket. I know. Yeah. It was weird. I didn't like it. Yeah, I agree. I think if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna make a big deal about the costume, that you both need to change. Yeah, absolutely. So then, because otherwise, it just came across they just wanted to make Rose hotter. Mm. They just wanted to make that the hotness the talking point. And there's some yucky things with that with her like sexuality through this app when she gets you know does this cloth smell like chloroform to you <laughs> moment. I love a chloroform <laughs> moment like Nancy with... Drew big chloroform <laughs> yeah. fan with the Undertaker. And then when she comes around later and confronts Sneed, she says, "Oh." Don't think I didn't. I wasn't aware of you getting, you know, all handsy with me. Yeah, your hands having a quick wander is the line. Yeah, so that's like both a physical assault, as in knocking her out and kidnapping her, mm. and then also this like sexual element to it that's just weird and yuck. Yeah, and again, the double standard, right? Because you've got like, you know, this oh, we're pious and devout and blah, 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 and we're mm. also religious, and yet women don't count because you can just, like, feel them up whenever because I guess they're just mm. chattel. Yeah, super weird. Don't like it. Yeah, no, I noted that as well. I thought that was definitely a double standard. And I thought also that thing when she's having that conversation with Gwyneth, and Gwyneth says, you know, you've got the airs cl- and graces, basically, but you talk mm. like some sort of wild thing, and she's yeah. like, maybe I am, and maybe that's a good thing, which, again, I thought was that yeah. woman's rebellion and that Taylor mm. Swift angle, right? Like, yeah. yeah, be a wild thing. Yes, which I think is really cool. It's showing that Rose is being like, actually, like, who am I? What do I want? 
you know, I've decided to take this really independent leap and go off into the universe and travel through space and time with essentially this random alien. But it also made me think of, this is a line that you brought up when we were talking about this theme, the whole we're the daughters or granddaughters of the, the witches you couldn't burn. And yeah. it, oh, I just, yeah, so maybe time to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, so there's been this whole thing, you know, you see it on t-shirts and stuff, and on the surface level, it sounds quite, like, fun, right? So it's like, we are the daughters of the witches you couldn't burn. <laughs> but it seems to have been really co-opted by what I think is, like, I it's been co-opted by the TERF movement. You see it in a lot of TERFs, like, being like, yeah, we're defending women's rights. This is a, I have snipped a, a tweet from J.K. Rowling. Literally, her wearing a t-shirt. This witch doesn't burn. Can't believe you went on her Twitter. That's brave I didn't. Of you. I didn't. I went on an article which was pro-trans, anti-rolling, right. and they snipped it. Yeah, and were like, "This is the issue." Yeah, because it's just there's a lot of issues I have with this. The implication that, firstly, my gut instinct is, yeah, okay, so you're the daughter of someone they didn't burn because they probably sold someone else out. So, you know, you threw your neighbour under the bus in ye olden times, and that's why you didn't get burnt, you know? So it's not really community-minded. There's heaps of layers to it. It's also kind of like gimmicky history. Like, majority of witches were hanged, not burned. Yeah, it's actually not as big a deal as people think it is. People think it was mass chaos. Yeah, and a lot of people were prosecuted for being witches, but definitely not via burning. That was very much a minority. Yeah, and I think it's more like they like to do, especially the turfiness is, and J.K. Rowling, it's this binary. And Which specifically the... for her in the Harry Potter canon, it's witches versus wizards. They aren't male witches. No. Yeah, so... You are just, our Harry Potter expert. So. Yeah, for context <laughs> for the pod, I have to say that I am a massive Harry Potter fan and I continue to be a Harry Potter fan, which I know is problematic and I have an essay prepared should anyone wish to read it <laughs> on like how that works in my head. But basically, I've just divorced her entirely from the canon. It means to me what it means to me because I grew up with it and I actually just don't care what she thinks at yeah. all. But it is interesting. And like once you start looking... Yeah, she is a binary thinker, right? I've been reading a lot of stuff as well where sometimes they will just call them mages or magicians. You very rarely see them call men witches. I'm trying to think. Maybe in Sabrina are they witches? I think maybe. Yeah, I read an interesting article written by Douglas Greenwood um, about being a male witch and being especially a modern male witch. And somebody he interviewed for that piece, uh, Michael, you know, he grew up with a kind of family tradition of afro kind of latino branch of, of witchcraft where it's totally cool to be you know of any gender i think in, in that tradition mm. and it was only when he'd grown up and the fact that um or actually this is mainly a female thing being called a witch didn't kind of hit him until he was older and people said oh you, you know you're not a witch because you're a boy and heavily influenced by that kind of harry potter vibe reinforcing that of, of what was going around so yeah, and, and he kind of challenges that with my understanding of witchcraft being a, a witch is, is a verb, you know, it's an act of doing mm. rather than a thing. Yeah, and it's a, a recent thing. And I wonder, like, I didn't look into this, but I, I bet there's something around the shift towards calling women witches and sort of the rise of the persecution of women for having opinions, like to keep them in their place, right? So we had to other, you know, the men could be witches and a bit superstitious and that's fine, but if the women did it, then we were, like, going to keep them in line, you know? So maybe that's when it started getting divorced from men so much. I did recently read a graphic novel series. The first one is called The Witch Boy by Molly Ostertag, and it's really lovely. So it takes place in this magical community. 
where the boys traditionally become shifters, like shapeshifters, and the yep. girls get taught witchcraft. And this boy wants to be with the women. He wants to learn witchcraft. And everyone's like, you can't do it, you can't do it, you're a shifter. And it transpires that actually he does have innate magical talent, and therefore boys should be allowed to be witches. It's just this weird binary that exists for no reason. And there are mm. girls who want to shift. You know, lovely series about changing perceptions in your society. So I would recommend that. It's a YA series. Mm, cool. Just an aside. Yeah, yeah, no, it's nice. So, oh, I mean, there's so much here, right? I think this is like a really interesting theme. And I know you said that maybe the Joan of Arc aspect comes up I'm pretty sure later. there's a Capaldi episode with Joan of Arc. And I know there's a Jodie Whittaker series with like an episode about witch trials in England. Like, okay, cool. Actual... Sweet, sweet, sweet. So we can unpack it from maybe that more early modern kind of era type of mm. brand of witchiness. But yeah, this overall theme of there being a double standard and women's kind of skill or use of something, whether that's witchcraft or other, an ability is only valued as long as it's helpful and it's not dominant. Mm. I read an interesting article. It's actually this blog post by a woman called Suzanne Hyatt, who was reviewing a book written by Jude Doyle. And the book is called Trainwreck, The Woman We Love to Hate, Mock and Fear and Why. And higher in her in her review says in this book Doyle explains why successful powerful women are simultaneously idolized and hated from the Salem witch trials to modern day online bullying there's something about a confident outspoken woman that sends society into hysterics and you know how that ties into that double standard if a successful woman makes one mistake even a relatively tiny one she becomes mocked she becomes you know a focus of disproportionately more attention than and Taylor Swift was a prime example of that and yeah yeah just men not being held to that same amount of standard i come back to the taylor swift example just because i find it fascinating you know she was she is beloved like she was very popular incredibly popular and then there was this moment where it does did seem that everyone was just waiting like people love it when people make a mistake right it's a tall poppy syndrome which new zealand excels at yeah so yeah when taylor when it looked like she was finally getting comeuppance because she's annoying because she's successful but you know she has that great song on is it Lover, where she's, you know, the man, where it's like, mm. no one would say Fuck. this if, it's a, if I was a man. I love that song. Me too. Sometimes I listen to it in the morning just to... Yeah. Psych up. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's awesome. She's not wrong. You no, know? no, no. It's true. It's really true. Yeah. Oh, it's so good that, you know, if she name drops in that song, like, you know, other male celebs who, you know, if it's them, baller, but... Because I'm a, a, a woman, a young woman as well. And I think also, like, a conventionally attractive young woman. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think she was known for when she was younger. I mean, she's, like, well in her 30s now. She's not... This is it. Like, people think of her as a kid still, and it's really not the case. But especially when she was a lot younger, just like everyone who's young does, dated multiple got like, a few, you know, had a boyfriend for a few months, and then did... Which is, like, 100% normal, what everyone does. Mm. But for, you know, the narrative was, like, oh, she can't keep a man. So it's, like, she didn't have... She wasn't married, she wasn't, like, locked down in a conventional relationship for them to be like, oh, you know, well, she has this happy home life with mm. husband, so it's easier to vilify. Yeah. That she's, like, independent, strong, extremely independently, financially, you know, And she fights wealthy. for what she believes in, right? Like, mm. she she wasn't going to let her record label bully her around or do anything like that. But mm. I think she had to really... We sort of witnessed her journey to that point. Yeah. And witnessed her coming into her own in a way. And in a way mm. that a lot of us do. We come into our power when we were in our 30s, right? Because yep. you just hit the ceiling at a point and you just go, no more. No, when I know myself, you're like, I know mm. myself now, actually. And no, I'm not going to tolerate this bullshit. And I do like that about Taylor, how in more recent years, she has not, you know, she's tread a very fence position. Mm -hmm. People thought she was like a covert Republican mm -hmm. for years. And she's come out and been like, 
no. Yeah. I'm not. And I'm not going to. Because, you know, the country western, France, not, not to throw shade on an entire group of people, but a lot are... Conservative. More right of centre. Yeah. And so maybe that was like a political decision from her family and her managers or whomever to... I don't want to rid it with Taylor of agency there, but... No, no, you no. You want to keep I, the most people happy. and I definitely, is something that I criticised her for to my friends, when I would be like, well, she doesn't have an opinion. She never, where is she when there's an election campaign or anything? She doesn't come out. She's got all these people who follow her and she doesn't have an opinion. And if you watch her Miss Americana documentary on Netflix, she Love talks it. about yeah. that. And she talks about how her label was, was very reluctant and a manager was like, everyone was telling her not to do it because mm-hmm. it's career suicide. And you look at someone like Dolly Parton, right? Dolly Parton has very effectively sort of tread that line as well. Mm-hmm. She's not political. Which you can say you're an entertainer, you shouldn't have to be, but... You're still a person yeah. and you still have you know values. And, and I think Taylor does have strong ideas of what she personally thinks is right and wrong. And yeah, what does it cost you? And that's actually a really interesting point. So in this blog post that's talking about the book by Jude Doyle, you know, talking about that double standard, it creates a huge amount of anxiety for women because we feel terrified of making that kind of small mistake. Mm -hmm. We're terrified of the villagers with their pitchforks because we've seen other women being attacked in that way. And we don't want that fate. So we censor ourselves, we hide, we shrink down and we try to make ourselves unbothersome and invisible, we play small because we don't want to be burned at the stake. Yeah, and that applies, I think, to people of colour and queer identities as well. And you see this in representation. Something that I get really upset by is when people criticise representation for not being perfect. So, you know, when there's a piece of media out or something, they're like, well, you know, it's bad queer representation. I'm like, but there's so much bad heteronormative representation. Equity, in a way, looks like there should be some bad representation. It would be great. But because you only have one chance, like, that one example has to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, then you just throw out the whole thing. Like, it loses all value, which is such a shame for us to lose that. I know. I want shitty queer rom-coms yeah. just like i could paper the fucking walls with shitty <laughs> cis hat i know rom-coms and like i love the happiest season right and people say how terrible that is and like it's not a good queer relationship and i'm like but who cares it's kristen stewart and like let me have there's so many bad straight christmas movies let me have yeah this, you know and with first kill i haven't watched it but it's on netflix right and there's sapphic vampires and people are like this is the worst thing that's ever existed i'm like oh well there's so many bad cw shows from supernatural through to like teen wolf i'm not saying they're bad but you know what i mean these dime a dozen vampire academy shows yeah out the wazoo <laughs> millions yeah so i also have seen first kill i've also heard that this kind of like loads of queer lesbian instagram accounts that i follow being like yes it is trashy but i love it and again, then, you know, people who review media who are like, Ooh. Yeah, and like, and let, like let there be trashy queer content. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's great. Yeah. And that's the point. Representation matters, and it needs to be representation in all forms, and just fucking volume of it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, to get back to your point where you said, you know, what's the cost on having an opinion? I think to bring it back to the episode, you know, what's the cost for Gwyneth to, like, do this thing? It costs her a life. The ultimate cost. Yet again, another dead woman. Yeah. the That's the, you know, the apex of that is, like, she literally sacrifices everything. She finally unlocks his power. She finally becomes aware of what she's capable of. And then, yeah, uses it in the ultimate way to save everyone and kill herself. But even through that episode, she's like, oh, no, I don't want to use my sight. You know, I, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, it's not right. Mm-hmm. I should just be quiet. I should just keep doing my job. And, you know, it's not Christian normative, like, whatever. And it's like, no, well... 
why, you know, what could she be doing if she was actually, if she'd focused on it or had, you know, some more support or had guidance or tapped into that a long time ago. I also think, I don't know how much agency Gwyneth has because there is this class issue as well that she's being told to do things and she kind of has to because she's in this subservient role, not just as a woman in a society that didn't really value women, but as like she's straight up a servant in this household, right? So she's being bossed around all the time and the doctor sort of bosses her around as well. The amount of times that she calls Sneed master Mm. and uh, yuck. And he, the doctor also says, you know, don't antagonize her. I love a happy medium. And Rose says, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> yeah, no. But you know what I mean? So yeah. I feel like it wasn't really her choice to use her power. She's sort no. of like... Yeah, I uh, I wrote something down about that as well because I was like, this is a bit weird. Like, at one point, um, the doctor says, like, you know, essentially, Gwyneth, we need you. You're the only person who can do this to help us to create the link between the... Gelf. Yeah. And the the rift and you know the planet but then he does kind of like a sentence later he is like oh no but it, it is your choice but that's not properly giving someone a choice when you're like we need you you're the only one but also no worries if not like <laughs> it's not <laughs> the entire planet's gonna die because of you <laughs> yeah but... but that'll be on your head forever oh no it won't because you'll be dead like <laughs> and also there's just an imbalance right because she thinks that they're angels like she calls them my angels and stuff yeah and they're like yeah, you should help them that's entirely how she reconciles it to herself that that's what she wants to do at the end when they're down in the basement. She's like, no, it's okay, I want to do it. They're my angels. Yeah. <laughs> With her delightful Welsh accent. I also thought that was interesting that like, the Galf use female representation in a, a woman's voice. Like, they're quite like, yeah. Oh, and kids. It's like, yeah, they're like, oh, no, we're so innocent. And oh, oh, there's only, there's only so few of us. Please save us, humans. <laughs> And then immediately turn into little like, demon monsters. Which then take on a very mask, red, fiery, strong. Yeah, interesting. So it's representation, right? Like masquerading as women. Oh, this is the future the turfs want. I know. <laughs> Hiding as women, but you're actually a threat. Because we all know that what's stopping bathroom assaults. Think of the bathrooms! <laughs> Literally, a sign on the door is all that stands between us and anarchy. Like, it's so ridiculous. I'm sorry. It's just the stupidest argument I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I've just... You know, when you just get, like, total instantaneous rage and I've forgotten my entire train of thought because I'm like, fucking turfs. This is not a turf-friendly podcast. No, you are you... not. Like, go away. Don't, I don't even, don't even comment. <laughs> don't add us. No, like, don't. Straight block. I don't even... Yeah, you will get blocked. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> like, lol, that they'd be like, there's one turf who's listening. Yeah, you. <laughs> Susan. Karen. <laughs> Karen. Oh. Joanne. Yeah, oh my god. Oh my god, Joanne. Joanne, if you're listening. Stop Googling your own name, Joanne. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Just retreat, retreat into the woods like Enya. Oh. Yeah, but also we don't know if Enya's a turf, so. But that's good. I don't want to no, know. No, I don't want to know. But also, I'm extremely jealous of Enya and the castle on the sea and just being like, I've made my money, I will know. I just imagine being as wealthy as J.K. Rowling and creating this series and then going, you know what? I'm going to continue having opinions on the internet that no one asked for. And I'm going to continue shooting my own series and my own canon in the foot every time I get the opportunity. But it's not even like oh, I've got this opinion and, you know, I've done some research and, you know, this is really my thought and, like, in a level-headed, let's bring everyone to the table, let's have a conversation. It's like doing bullshit, sarky tweets. I know. Like, and everybody does bullshit, sarky tweets, but, like, you know, like, the one where she was one about when they said, like, people who have periods? Mm -hmm. Because we're being fucking inclusive because lots of people have periods. They don't all identify as women. Get fucking used to it. This is not a new thing. Mm. And she's like, oh, 
what is the word they are looking for? Womooks? Womund? It's like, you don't, like, are you being cute? To whom? It's honestly just the radicalisation of J.K. Rowling is fascinating, right? It's just like the more, she's in an echo chamber, so therefore she believes she's right, and so she keeps doubling down on it because mm. she just cannot, and any criticism that comes towards her is like, well, these people are crazy because everyone I know tells me I'm right. Oh, she 100% has like turfy morning teas, right? Where they'll come oh, around and they yeah. do like turfy chats. And then she's trying to like, oh, I don't know, she, you know, co-ops this queer language being like, you know, it's fine. Like I've got loads of lesbian friends. <laughs> no. Dude, that's like so weird. It's like when there's like black men who are like, I can't be racist. Yeah. I know a black man. I have a black friend. <laughs> Which makes me want to claw my own face off. Yeah. Cool. So maybe this is the point in the where we kind of go to my like random general observations. Mm. We've kind of ticked most of them off. Couple of side points. Apparently the TARDIS has a lot of rooms, mm-hmm. as which anyway we know because he's like, Oh, you know, we go down to the stairway and this is seventh door and the rah, 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 I get the costume. Do we ever and maybe this will be revealed through the seasons, but is there a kitchen? Are there beds? Do they have toilets? Anyone like I'm just gonna knit to the loo? There's a lot of chat about this online, actually, oh. around, like, what are the rooms of the TARDIS? And I feel like maybe in a Matt Smith episode, we go to a different room in the <gasps> TARDIS. No fucking way, really. But I may have made that up. But I'm fairly sure, like, I, I think it's one of the Amy Pond episodes you get to see a bit more of the TARDIS, but I may mm. have hallucinated that. Okay, I'm excited. Also, do Time Lords sleep? Who knows? Yeah, there's a lot of chat about this. Like, I remember this looking this up once, because the thing that fascinates me is, like, how do you age when you're in the TARDIS? Like, Rose is off-planet now. You know, she's maybe off-planet for, like, three minutes, but Ooh. she's traveling around. Oh, so, dude, yeah, she's gone like back in through time. This so is she's like, yeah. So what's the deal with your aging? Like, how? What birthday do you celebrate? Do you celebrate your birthday on the TARDIS? Like, is she gonna do a Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar and come back and her daughter's like 120? <laughs> like, yeah. who fucking knows? So that has always fascinated me. The sleeping as well. Like, do they just sleep on the TARDIS? Like, surely they need sleep, right? But does yeah. time work the same on the TARDIS? Like, mm. what is the passing? And what, I'm sure. Where's the food? Yeah. Does it have like a Star Uber Trek eats. replicator? And so they're just like, tea, all great hot, into the replicator, like Captain Picard. I assume, yeah, there's all these things. And I, I think that probably if you're a hardcore Doctor Who nerd, which we are not, there's probably explanations for this maybe in the canon. Like there's quite a oh, broad canon. in the actual ye olde times who. Not just that, but in the, the radio plays, the books, oh, the comics. Oh, true, true, true. And like everything that anyone's talked about it or said or, yeah. Okay, okay. So I'm sure if we wick into this. Like, there'll be a Wikipedia page. But what, I feel like I need that always sunny gif. I need some string. I need some posters. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Charlie, day this up. Yeah. Um. Cool, yeah. So just random, random thoughts. Um. Yeah, we talked about the, like, frisson that continues between Rose and the Doctor. Mm. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so quick thoughts. Keen for your opinion. The end, again, of this app, I feel, is a little bit weird where she blows herself up. Rose is upset. The Doctor's like, you know... You got it. Sometimes you got to make sacrifices, kind of vibe. And then it ends with Rose being all like, oh, I mean, almost ends with Rose being all like, oh, um, well, you know, this was just a moment in time, and she was just, you know, a servant girl. And I'm like, condescending much. It's a bit yeah. weird. She says she saved the world a servant girl, and no one will ever know. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, one, like, do something about it then. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's a little bit like, oh, whimsical sacrifices for the great she's a martyr i was like this is not kind of rose's vibe i don't know i feel like there's a lot of martyring on doctor who Mm. now that you've mentioned the word martyr but there's a lot of that people sacrificing themselves to for the greater good for the the greater good of humanity i guess and the doctor probably has seen this so many times he's like yeah gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet yeah (laughs) and also maybe to the doctor we're just like ants 
If you had to drown a few ants to oh, save the of, world. Well, this is it, right? Think how much he's seen. Think how much he's... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I was like, oh, a bit odd. We haven't even talked about... The, oh, no, actually, maybe it will come up in... Should we do our stand-up moments? Our stand-up moments. Do you want to go first? So my stand-up moment from the ip is actually about Charles Dickens. I love the moment when the doctor gets in the coach and Charles Dickens is like, get out. And he's like, no, I'm a massive fan. And he has to explain the concept of fandom to Charles Dickens, which I love, because Dickens is like, how exactly are you a fan? And what way do you resemble means of keeping oneself cool? Which is so ridiculous. <laughs> and then the doctor goes on to say give him some criticism, you know. Dickens, fan of padding, and it's taking five paragraphs, what would take Hemingway one word to say. And then Dickens says, I thought you said you were my fan. And the doctor goes, oh, well, if you can't take criticism, which I really enjoy. Like, I just love that kind of fandom exchange because it's just, you know, as a nod, it's self-referential because who is built on its fandom? Like, the resurgence of this. Yeah. Very much because Russell T. Davies was a massive Doctor Who fan. So, yeah. Awesome. Mm. The, that ties into the end as well, when he, you know, is a, when he's realised, he believes now, or kind of understands who the Doctor is and where he's come from, and says, you know, tell me, like, how long my books, will they last? Mm. And the, the Doctor says, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, as we'll see later, they'll go to the Library of the End of the World, which is in the Tenant series. The idea that books last forever and you can have all these books and mm. stories and things. My stand-up moment, I had a kind of couple, but some of them have kind of come up, so the main one, though, is also Charles Dickens related, which is just Simon Callow doing grade A theatrical acting. I'm just loving it. He just gives off, you know, maybe it's just because he's a great actor, but to me, he just looks like he's really leaning into this mm. role and just having a great time. Like, it, they, they play him quite kind of comedically. They also play him as, like, step away from the whole like he wasn't a great family man no but and also he did care about being popular like he did all these speaking tours he gives a shit like he's not someone who you know interestingly he's someone who was famous in his time mm. yeah and i just think simon Cowell is just doing we, this is this thing when you get british tv shows they tend to be a kind of walking tour of really actually decent british actors who maybe like had a weekend free and so you get people like doing amazing acting we mentioned Troy, the film, the other day, and we were talking about how the incredible turn that Peter O'Toole does, <laughs> where he was like... Yeah, acting his socks off to... Uh, please tell the, the audience about your mum's comment. Oh, yeah. My mom, my mum's assessment of Troy is that generally the acting is more wooden than the horse. Except for Peter O'Toole. <laughs> Except for Peter O'Toole. So you've got Peter O'Toole, and then just Brad Pitt is just squinting into the distance, like attempting to do serious acting face. And I just imagine Peter just being like, what the fuck? <laughs> Like, yeah, it's uh, my favourite stories about Alec Guinness filming the first Star Wars. She's like, who are these fucking idiots? I hate every moment of this. I love that. And you're right. Like, British shows are great for that. You sometimes just be watching something. You're like, why is Charles Dance in this? Yeah, li- like doing incredible acting and everyone's just like, oh, okay. Oh, uh, yeah. So I really, really enjoyed Charles Dickens in this and I enjoyed Simon Callow. And I know that a lot of the... Yeah, a lot of the Who apps kind of go off planet and they go somewhere else, but a lot are also set in England because that's where it's filmed Mm -hmm. and that's where it's cheap to film. Like a surprising amount of stuff takes place in present day England. Yeah, we're legit in Cardiff because that's where the BBC was based for the filming of this. Yeah. Oh, and I love a Welsh accent. That is a standout moment generally from the show. I feel like Welsh accents are underrepresented. Yeah. I do think it is cheap that they brought Gwyneth back as Gwen and Torch with those same actors. Keep the name. They probably still, they were like, we've got the contract. Should we just, like, change the dates? 
I'm pretty sure they made that canon. Like, they gave some excuse. Like, there's a throw a line, line in one of the Torchwood episodes that explains Gwyn's great-great-ancestor. And... Oh, okay, so this is like... I have, I'm, I wrote this down to talk to you. I actually have a witchcraft ancestor link. Mm. So there is a legend, anecdote, thing in my family that I've been told from when I was small that my mum's side, we have a great-aunt Catherine who was a witch. So the great-aunt, she was obviously a very many generations ago, so it would be like, great-great-great-great-great. But uh, yeah, apparently she was a witch and she was known for being in the village and cursing other people's pigs. Rude. Yeah, but I just love it because it was never explained to me as like, ha ha ha, witch kind of fictiony thing. It was like, no, she is an ancestor of yours and that's what she did. And I was like, oh yeah, cool. Love that for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. And you know, that point you made about Dickens, because he's got that line in the show where he says on this episode, you know, I think I think I dedicated myself to social causes. I hoped I was a force for good. I kind of love that because he's being challenged in his belief. He's seeing with his own eyes that there's like supernatural, even though it turns out not to be supernatural. But you know, in that moment, and he's questioning everything about himself. And he's mm. like, but I think I was a force for good. And of course, the implication is that after this, he went on to write Edwin Drood. Yeah, but he's about to die. So he thinks he's going to like do this big cool thing. And it's like, nah, you are not long for this world. Yeah, he dies the next year, 1918. 1870? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, And, you know, we could talk for, like, hours on the whole um, using fiction to kind of retcon famous people's personalities. (laughs) And maybe he was probably nowhere near this. But, like, who cares, right? It doesn't matter. How will we not? Yeah, this is it. Exactly. It's your representation. It's your adventure. We'll make it how we want it to be. I think it is funny that we see this quite a few times in Who when there's the creatives on the show, like, famous creative people. And they're always so concerned with their enduring legacy, like with this being like, you know, do my story so they live on. And I think this is just the the writer or the, the creator's ego coming into it as well. Like, why do we create? Because we want something to last, right? Mm. So the idea that you're just creating for the sake of creating is quite a weird shift to make. So all these people are like, do my story survive? Oh, that's really interesting. Maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's because these shows are being written and produced and directed by people who, for them, that's an important part of creativity. Whereas, you know, it's perfectly legit, obviously, and there's very many creatives who are like, this is for no one but me. Mm. This is just a way to get my thoughts out of my head and onto a page or Mm. into a medium. Something to watch for and maybe we can pick it up in a future episode when it comes out again. I'm just thinking about the Vincent Van Gogh episode. Okay, yeah. That was your pronunciation of... (laughs) My Dutch pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, well, I think, do you have anything else? Are we all good? No, I think we basically covered it. Hey, like, I know that this, we're trying to keep these apps, you know, ideally to, between that 45 to an hour kind mm-hmm. of space. And, and yeah, we could talk about it heaps. So if you have, as a listener, any particular things that you think we, on this theme, missed, let us know. But, yeah, it was really interesting. And we will, I think we will return to witchcraft when it comes oh, up again. Oh, 100%. So yeah, I think everything, and, and double standards, I think that's going to come out many times yeah and probably religion too yeah. i think yeah the tension between science and religion probably you know we've got science and like witchcraft and religion but science and religion that's a whole other kettle of fish yeah i think it's cool that this episode looked at the supernatural because i think maybe that's something that's less so in who like it's mm. quite overtly science fictiony rather than being like oh is it ghosts yeah that's true because like yeah i guess if there are ghosts then that opens a different spiritual conundrum right and i think it's trying to stay quite firmly agnostic or at least kind of low-key atheist right you know he's no one's talking about 
gods or I mean they're talking about gods as in equally <laughs> equal mythologies, equal pantheons. Do you have a moment to talk about Jesus? <laughs> Cool. cool. Okay, well, next week we'll be discussing episodes four and five, which is Aliens of London and World War Three. So, yeah, let us know your thoughts. Um, you can email us at atardisofonesown at gmail.com. It'll be in the show notes. Or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the show notes for all our links and references that we've discussed in this episode. And otherwise, we will catch you next week. Have a brilliant week. Bye. Bye.